1 Corinthians 2 says that God has things, the things he's planned for us, you couldn't even imagine. It says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's not even entered the heart of humans, what God has prepared for those that love him. But then he says, these things, only who knows the heart of a man except the spirit of a man? And who knows the heart of God except the spirit of God? And even so, he says, We've not received the spirit which is from the world, but the spirit which is from God. He says the only person that knows God's heart is God's own spirit. And then he goes on and he tells you, and that's the spirit he gave you. So, And he goes and he says, so that you would know the things freely given to you by God. Why is it important that you know the things freely given to you by God? So you can receive it. If you don't know what's yours, you won't receive it. It's like having a grant that's already been granted to you. The government's already given you a grant. And yet you don't know about it, so you don't receive it. Our own brother Spiro, who's here in the first service this morning, when he came over to Canada, he came over on a ship, and he came over on the lowest fare because he was young and he was poor, and that was all he could afford coming from Greece to Canada. And uh, on that ship, he would go and he'd look at what the rich people were eating, all this food and the cookies that he wanted. Oh, the cookies on the table. He had food, but he didn't get all that, that nice spread that he was looking at. He would look and he would like drool over it and be like, man, I wish I had that. It was only when the trip ended that he found out that all that he was drooling over was included in his ticket. But he didn't know. He just drooled over it and said, I wish I had that. But he could have had that. It was already his. But he didn't go get it. And so that's why God says, I want you to know what I've freely given to you so you can receive it, so that you can give it. When the woman with the, who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years heard about Jesus, she went to him because she said, well, that's what I need. And so I pray that that's what happens this morning. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you uh, are familiar with this uh, book, this letter, then you'll know that this was the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Uh, this was at the end of his life, and he talks very clearly about the fact that this is at the end of his life. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. And he's not sad about it. He's not, like, sad to go. He's actually very excited. There are times in the New Testament where he um, says, you know, look, I'd rather go be with Jesus now, but I'm sticking around for your benefit. But at this point, he, go, he says, I've run my, I've fought the good fight of faith. I have finished my course. I've completed my race. There's a crown of victory waiting for me. There's a reward. There's a trophy waiting for me in heaven. So he's excited to go see Jesus, and he knows that he's about to go. And he's not going because he's feeling sick or old or something. He's, he knows that pretty soon his life is going to be taken from him. He's, he's, he's a prisoner of Rome, and he knows the tides are turning, and pretty soon he's going to have to give his life for Jesus. He's not sad about it, but there's an urgency that comes. When you know your time is near, there's stuff I got to get done, right? He's aware there's something. I, I can't just leave uh, without preparing the next generation. You know, he's got this young guy named Timothy that's been traveling with him, that he's been training up. He says, Timothy is like a son to me, and he writes two letters to Timothy that are helping him and encouraging him. Paul says, like, you've got gifts in you you're not using. Stir up the gift. He says, I was there when God put those things in you. Don't let them go. Don't neglect them. He says, don't let anybody look down on you for your youth, but be an example for the rest of the believers in faith and love and perseverance. Be an example for these people. So he's pouring into Timothy, and he's preparing him for his departure. Now, at the end of his, his letter, 
I, I've shared this with you before, but I, I don't know if you remember a f- couple months ago, a few months ago, we, um, we read about Paul's departure from uh, Ephesus, uh, is the Roman province of Asia, which when we think of Asia, we think of the continent of Asia, but the Roman province of Asia is really what we now call Turkey, okay? So that's not actually Asia. It's what they called Asia. And uh, there were a bunch of churches started there that Paul was influential in. And he's saying goodbye to the people in Ephesus. And a bunch of ministers from around that province of Asia come to see him. And they say, like, he says, I'm not going to see your face again. This is the last time we're going to talk. And they cry. They weep. They beg him, please don't go. They, they're saying, we love you. We'll never forget you. You know, we're so grateful you came. But by the time he writes this letter to Timothy, he says, all of those in Asia deserted me. It's really sad. These are people that wept over him and said, we'll never leave you. You're, you're, I, we're so sad you're leaving, but thank you. And now they've all deserted him. Why? He hasn't changed his doctrine. He hasn't changed who he is. But now, you know, he's, he's the guy that's not so popular anymore. Now he's on trial, and now people are saying things about him. And now uh, if you identify with him, maybe you get in trouble too. Or, or even some of his own fellow ministers were saying, well, he must have done something wrong. Uh, look at him. He's still in prison. You know, don't follow that guy. And so he's fallen out of style. He's fallen out of fashion. Should never have happened, but it did. People left him. And he's got a, he begins to tell Timothy what's gone on recently in chapter 4. And he first talks about those that, that have left. And then he talks about those that actually did him harm and damaged his ministry. Like Alexander the coppersmith. He, he talks about um, those folks that, that uh, have, have really opposed the teaching. But he says this in verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me. Like when we talk about the Apostle Paul, he's the guy that wrote most of the books in the New Testament. If we could have him as a guest speaker today, I'm not offended if you say, I'd rather have him for sure. (laughs) Right? Like he is a superhero to us. You know, God used him in such a mighty way. And at the end of his life, nobody shows up for him. He has a trial. He's on trial. He could really use some character witnesses right now. Nobody stands up for him. Nobody, not only does nobody stand up for him and say, I can testify to his character, nobody even comes to the trial just to sit there and let him know he's not alone. And when you begin to think this way, you think of in the natural, look what I've done for you. Look at all I've sacrificed for you. There's something that could arise in a human being when you think you've done all these things for God or you've done all these things for people and you're not getting anything from it. There's a bitterness that rises up in your heart. It's easy. If you're not careful, there's a bitterness that rises up and says, I deserve better than this. God, I don't know why you let me down, but all these people did and and I've loved them, I've poured out for them, look what I get back. It'd be very easy for Paul at the very end of his life to trip at the finish line. Like this is the finish line of his race, right? There's a sense of relief. There's a sense of exhilaration as he gets near it. And yet he's got the opportunity to really trip at the end because there could be some bitterness and anger that arises. Watch what he says, though. He says, nobody supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. 
Now, this is a phrase that you might say sounds familiar to you. May it not be counted against them. That's similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's, it's, it's a lot like what Stephen said when he was being stoned to death, rocks thrown at his head. But instead of looking at the people that were throwing rocks at him, he looked at Jesus. He looked heavenward. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Father, don't hold this against them. He prayed mercy for the people that were murdering him. Because that's what happens when you look at Jesus. Your perspective switches. You're not caught in the moment. You're caught in eternity. Something's bigger. And Paul says this. He says, may it not be counted against them. You know, you can see that bitterness is not working in his heart here. Instead, there's mercy. Instead, there's grace for them. There's forgiveness for them. But he says, but the Lord. Nobody stood with me. Everybody deserted me. But, King James says, notwithstanding. The Lord stood with me. Amen. That's what changes everything. This, this, this little passage that seems pretty tragic and, 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 and just seems like a tragedy is now a triumph because instead of saying, everybody deserted me, nobody stood with me, now we're switching it. But the Lord stood with me. Amen. And the Lord strengthened me. And he says, and so that through me, the proclamation might be fully made or fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the, here's the promise. God's going to rescue me. He's rescued me. He will keep rescuing me. But I want you to see how everything switches for him. Now, this letter could have ended terribly, but instead it ends with, but the Lord stood with me. And when the Lord stood with me, this is what happens when the Lord stands next to you. He strengthens you and he rescues you. What we're talking about here is the nearness of Jesus Christ, the nearness of your God, the, the fact that you know he is here, he's with me. Now I want to ask you a question. This, this saved Paul because he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that my mission might be complete so that I could fully carry out the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, if, God, if Jesus had not shown up in that moment, I wouldn't have finished my course. I wouldn't have run my race. I would have stumbled at the finish line and not fully carried out what God called me to do. But here's the question. How many of us has the Lord stood next to you in a time of trial, in a time of challenge, in a time where bitterness is starting to rise, how many times has the Lord stood with you and you not even be aware of it? You see, you see, it's not that Jesus showed up and everybody saw him and was like, oh man, there's a glowing dude. It wasn't like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where a guy was obviously in the fire with him. No, in this case, nobody sees Jesus. Even Paul doesn't see Jesus. And, and the reason I can say that confidently is because when he saw Jesus with his eyes, he talked about it. He said, I saw him. And others saw a bright light or something, whatever. In this case, he's just standing as a prisoner on trial, but he's aware that Jesus is standing with him. Now, you might think, well, that's for special people like Paul. But I would propose to you that the presence of the Lord, the presence of his spirit, that God's presence in your life, the nearness of him is supposed to be regular and not an exception. And it's in times like this that the Lord is standing with you that you might not even be aware of it because you're more in tune with people than you are with God. And when you're more in people than you are with God, you get bitter and you get angry. 
I've known ministers, I've known pastors, evangelists, prophets. I've known ministers that, that near the end of their ministry, they became grouchy and cranky and, and just angry. You know, the people used to invite them, didn't invite them anymore. They're kind of passe or whatever, and, and they feel like they don't have the influence they once had, or they feel like, you know, uh, um, they don't have the respect they once had. Whatever it is, maybe it was justified, but they've let that become so internal to them. They're more aware of the rejection of people than the acceptance of God. And what you're most aware of is really what you worship, what you're aware of, what you spend your time thinking about, what you are devoting your attention to, that's your idol. And if, if, if you worship the praise of people and you fear the rejection of people, it'll steer your whole life. You'll be steered by it, right? We say Jesus is Lord, but how do you know Jesus is Lord? He calls the shots. If, if, I'm, if I'm making decisions based on if I do this, I'll be rejected, then Jesus isn't calling the shots. The people I'm afraid of are calling the shots. And so what Paul does here is he switches it. He understands that uh, in this moment, I've got to be aware. Jesus is standing next to me, and he, he felt that presence, and he felt that strength, and something came into him that he didn't have before because I, I know he's a guy just like us. He's a human just like us. We would have all been looking around going, really, nobody? You can just go ahead and think that he was superhuman and didn't feel any of those things, but I guarantee he did. Looking around, what? Where is everybody? In that moment, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me and he rescued me so that through me the proclamation of the gospel may be fully carried out. Completing what God called you to do heavily depends on your awareness of him. Being aware of him more than you're aware of anything else. It's the nearness of God that's your strength. And this is what Jesus did. He stood next to him and he strengthened them. I, don't, I hope you've experienced this in your life and I hope you will from this day forward. But experience the power of the Lord standing next to you. I mean, we, we, we've talked to, as Christians, uh, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about God being above us. He is high above. He is high and lifted up. Uh, we've talked about God being before us. In other words, we're gazing upon him. We're looking at him. He's, he's the object of our, of our attention. We talked about the fact that the glory of the Lord is our rear guard. He goes behind us and protects us. But I, I want you to focus just this morning on the fact that the Lord, when he stands beside you, this is something he's, he wants you to know is that when he stands beside you, there is a strength that you didn't have. There is a perspective you didn't have. There's something, everything changes when the Lord is standing with you. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, Amen. right he came and he dwelt among us. And if you look at the Bible from Old Testament to New, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, what you see is a story of God wanting to live with his people, of God wanting to fill them with his presence, to fill the earth with his presence. And in the garden, you had heaven and earth coming together like we talked about a couple weeks ago. You had God's presence in the garden with his people. He walked with them, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. He walked with his people. But when sin came, there was a separation. And we see, even with that sin, 
In the Old Testament, as he calls his people Israel, he, he, he says when they exited Egypt, I walked with you. I carried you like a father carries his son. I went before you and I went behind you. I, I, I led you with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And he says, build me a tabernacle that I can live among you. Put a tent for me in the middle of all your tents that you would know my presence. Like we talked about last week, or a week before, I don't remember. But we talked about recently, uh, when they built the temple, Solomon's temple, God's presence dwelled in that place. And yet now, in the New Testament, the Bible says, through Jesus, the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and set up his tent in the middle of us. And now we are called the temple of God, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God's presence lives. We're the temple. Shouldn't that change everything? It's very easy for us to get caught up in life and caught up in ministry and forget to look to our side and say, Jesus, are you with me? Is the Lord standing next to me? Am I gaining strength from that? Or am I looking everywhere else to find some source of strength? Maybe an article I can read or, or maybe a friend that can give me some word of encouragement. That's great, but it can't replace the presence of God in your life. And everybody has done anything for God. It has not come out of a sense of, well, I've got a lot of skills and i got a hard work ethic. I can do something. Everything great that somebody's done for God has come out of relationship with God. It's come from time with Him, leads you to a place where you can do something for Him, not the other way around. You don't do something for Him so that you can spend some time with Him. You spend time with Him. So that what you do now is coming from him and not from you. There is a life that comes from him. When humanity fell away from God, we sinned in the garden. We got separated from life. So our bodies started to die. Creation itself fell into decay. If we look around, creation is constantly in a state of entropy, a state of decay. And yet... The Bible says even though our outer man is being decayed, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because our spirit is alive. And so when God fills you with his life, you're not slowly decaying. You are being renewed every day. I want to read you this. In John 14, you know it. It's a passage speaking of is God, Jesus is preparing, much like Paul did for Timothy. Jesus is even, it's even greater because Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he's going to go away. Now, Jesus was not secretive. It's starting to click at this point. John 14, 15, 16. It's starting to click. He, this is all happening the night he's going to be arrested. Talk about some last-minute instructions. He, he's, they're getting it that night, some instructions. And he's preparing them so they don't freak out when he goes away. And it's not like he's hidden the fact that he's going to die. He's quite obvious about it. He didn't, he didn't like drop little hints like, you know, Life is like a flower. It goes away. Wink, wink. This, you know, you got to treasure the things while they're with you because they might be gone soon. No, he straight up said, I'm going to die. He said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to put me to death. Then I'll rise on the third day. And yet they're like, I wonder what he means by that, though. What's that code for? Hmm, I don't know. When he actually dies, they go, who could have seen this coming? When he rises from the dead, they're like, I don't Seems like he would have told us about this. But he did over and over again. On the third day, I will rise. He's, he said it. He said, if I be lifted up on a cross, I'll draw all men to myself. Huh. <laughs> That's a strange analogy, isn't it? Interesting. Okay. 
The Son of Man, he says, must be delivered into the hands of the rulers and the priests, and they'll put me to death. But don't worry, on the third day I'll arise. Wow, beautiful poetry. Someday we'll understand. But now, in the last night, hopefully it's starting to sink in. He says, I'm going to go away. And they're saying, Lord, where are you going? He goes, where I go, you can't come. But then he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. Believe in God, believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Look at this in in John 14, verse 16. He's telling them, I'm going to be with you. Don't you worry, I'm going, but this is a good thing. He says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you Another helper. So the word another means one like you've already had. Another. You already have had a helper. You've known the helper. I'm going to give you another one. He says another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you already know him because he abides with you and now he'll be in you. How do they know the Holy Spirit? They haven't received the Holy Spirit. Day of Pentecost hasn't happened. How do they already know the Holy Spirit? Well, they've been walking with him for these years. The Holy Spirit's been the driving force behind everything Jesus has done. He goes, you know him because you know me. And he says, you know the Father because you know me. So he's showing the unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're one here. We're distinct, yet we're one. So he says, you know the Father because you've been with me. You know the Spirit because you've been with me. We don't, we don't fight. We don't contradict. We, we're in unity. And here's the thing is he says, and, and, and uh, I mean, this, this still baffles me. I mean, still, sometimes I have to remind myself that this is true. But he says to his disciples, it's actually good for you if I go away. Now, if we had a vote right now, I know we all said we'd prefer to have the Apostle Paul this morning. If we could get him as a guest speaker, we'd have him. What if I said, what about Jesus, physically Jesus? Would you like to have him as a guest speaker on a Sunday morning? Yes, I would like to have him. Okay, but would you trade that for having the Holy Spirit in you? No, I wouldn't trade that, right? Jesus says, it's good for you if I go away. And I'm sure everybody at that point says, want to make a bet? I don't think so. I think it's better for you if you stay. We like this setup, right? We like this arrangement. No, it's good for you if I go away. He says, it's better for you if I go away because if I do... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ascend to the Father. If I go to the Father, I'm going to send my spirit to you, and he will be in you. This is the reality. Now, the reason that still that, that makes our brain kind of twist into a pretzel is because we're not realizing the reality of the Holy Spirit. He says he'll be another helper, just like you have. You already know him. Listen, when the disciples walked with Jesus, they didn't have to worry about, well, what are we doing today? Because whatever Jesus did, we're going with him, Right? They didn't have to worry about what they were going to eat because we're with Jesus, we'll be fine. When it came time to pay taxes and they didn't have the money for the temple tax, Jesus told Peter, go fishing, and there'll be a coin in the fish's mouth. Isn't that crazy? So they weren't concerned about their life. As long as they were with Jesus, whatever you're doing, we're doing. If he said, we're going to cast a demon out, they go, sure, that's what we're doing today. Because they trusted him. Now he says, there's another helper. You already know him. He's going to be with you. They want, Jesus wants them to know the Holy Spirit and to rely on the Holy Spirit the same way they've relied on Jesus. That's how real the Holy Spirit should be to you. Just like if Jesus were walking to the mall with you and you just saw his robe and you just followed him, that's as real as it should be walking with the Holy Spirit. 
Now watch what he says. He abides with you. Now he's going to be in you. In verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. Because I live, listen to this, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him, or I will keep revealing myself to him. That person that loves me, I'm going to keep showing them, my, I'm, I'm going to show them I'm here with you. I'm going to show them who I am. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're, not, that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Remember, he says, the world won't see me, but you will. Jesus answered and said, if anybody loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode or make our dwelling, our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my word, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit is Jesus' way of saying, you will, because of the Holy Spirit, you're always going to know I'm right there. Because of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see me when nobody else sees me. When I, can I ask you that? Do you see Jesus even though nobody around you sees Jesus? I'm not trying to get all mystical and say, do you see a vision of Jesus right now? Maybe God will do that for you, but that's not, that's not how you base whether Jesus is here or not, whether you physically see him. We walk by faith and not by sight. If the Lord blesses you and says, I want to show you a vision of myself, that's his business, but that, that's not how you determine whether the Lord's with me. Amen. Do you see Jesus when everybody around you does not see Jesus? Yeah. Because that, that is the way a Christian is meant to live all the time. It's not meant to be one once a year, I had an experience. Now, this is your reality. I see Jesus. I walk with Jesus. Once again, I'm not talking about a vision like with your physical eyes. I'm talking about a knowledge. Jesus is here. I know his presence. I seek his presence. I make room for him. The spirit of God dwells within me, so he's helping me. He's showing me Jesus. I, am, I, I know I'm not alone because he starts this sentence or this paragraph with saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I promise you, I'm going, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will not abandon you. It's tragic when we start living like orphans. People who, who are convinced they're spiritual orphans, they start doing what you'd expect an orphan to do. Fight for your own self, fend for yourself. You have to be competitive because if you don't look out for number one, who's going to look out for you? You seek your, what's best for your life. Not best for the kingdom, but what's best for your life because you got to take care of yourself. But the Bible says he died for us that we who live might no longer live for ourselves. Amen. And we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. Like Leah said, somebody's taking care of you. Your father takes care of you. And so there's a trust that says, I'm not having to look out for myself. I'm not having to act like an orphan. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry that God's blessing them because God, they're part of my family. God's blessing me too. I am celebrating when, when others are seeing the goodness of God because I know that's part of who I am too. We have the same Father. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. 
I'm not going to leave you looking at the sky going, where's Jesus? I'm not going to leave you saying, I'm so alone. Why, why, why isn't God with me anymore? I'm not going to leave you that way. I will come to you, and I will make my home with you. And this is the reality of a believer. Now, Paul, in his most desperate moment, knew that Jesus was standing next to him. He knew that because he knew how to recognize the presence of God. He knew that because he lived in that place. He says in Philippians, I, he says, I, I can, I'm okay if I, if I have a lot. He says, there's been times where I've had an abundance. I've had plenty of resources. And there's been times where I've had barely anything. I know how to get along. He says, I know the secret of surviving and, and doing fine and being content. That's what he says, being content with scarcity and being content with abundance. In other words, you can't get this guy down. You can't wreck his day. I know the secret of having a little, and I know the secret of having a lot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, how did Jesus strengthen him in 2 Timothy 4? He stood next to him. That presence of God. One of my mentors in the faith said this. He said, you know how Paul was content in every circumstance? He knew in every circumstance to look for where Jesus was. And everything he went through, he looked for Jesus. Where's Jesus? Because I can do all things through Christ. So it doesn't matter what circumstance you put me in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In a believer's life, one of the most important things that we'll ever learn, one of the most important things we'll ever experience is knowing how to abide in Christ, how to stay there, how to live in his presence because Jesus says if we went to the next chapter he says I'm a vine I'm the vine I'm the true vine you are the branches and unless you abide in me you won't be able to do anything he says apart from me you can do nothing but if you abide in me you'll bear much fruit when you cut a, a branch off of a vine or you cut a branch off a tree it doesn't land on the ground and keep growing once it's separated from the source of life it dies it doesn't start bearing fruit, right? That's why it was such a miracle when Aaron's staff that had been cut off a tree, his staff began to bud and blossom. That was a miracle because a staff doesn't do that. Something you cut off a tree doesn't start blossoming. Everything good that's supposed to come out of your life is that fruit that, that comes from knowing him, that fruit that comes from the spirit of God within you, that, that life that's coming out of you that springs out even in funny places. You know, like flowers coming out of the cracks of concrete. When there's so much life in you, it spills out in weird ways. Not weird, but, you know, unexpected. And yet when you're separated from that and you're not abiding in Christ and you're doing it on your own, he says you can't do anything. It's dead. So we're seeing here that Jesus is telling us, you're going to be able to see me when no one else sees me. I just want to ask you the question, do you know how to look for him? Do you know how to lean into the presence of God? And it's okay to say no. It's okay if you say today, actually, nobody's ever taught me how to do that. And I wish I could tell you there's 10 easy steps, but it's like any relationship. If you said, here's 10 easy steps, to, here's 10 easy steps for you and your wife to have a good relationship, that might help me. But ultimately, what's going to help me in my relationship with my wife is spending time with my wife. I'll learn what she likes. I'll learn what she doesn't like. Right? Sometimes we learn those even faster. Like, what she likes is don't do the things I don't like, right? Sometimes you learn that. You learn how to love each other. You learn the things that make each other happy. You don't learn that because somebody gave me a 
cheat book, you know, and says, here's the things she liked. Tia's parents could have given me a book and says, here's all the things Tia likes. And in my own attempt to replicate that, I would have failed miserably. But when you get to know somebody, when you spend time with them, and this is the same thing in the presence of God, we need a people of God that say, I want to spend time in the presence of God. I want to know Jesus. I want to know God. I want to know him, as Paul said, and the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. You know, you think about um, all of these, these, these folks that are all these disciples that Jesus called. One of the gospels said uh, when he appointed the 12 disciples, it says he called them to himself. And he appointed them that they may be with him. And then it says, and that they may do, and he lists some of the miracles and signs and wonders they would do. But the first thing he says is that he called them so that they would be with him. The disciples were first called to be with Jesus before they were called to do anything for Jesus. Your first call as a Christian is to be with the Lord. Then, out of that place, you're going to do great things for him. Too often we flip it around. Do you remember Mary and Martha? Sisters that supported Jesus' ministry, the sisters of Lazarus. And you remember, they had a house in Bethany that Jesus and his disciples would always stay at anytime they were coming to the Jerusalem area because Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem. So they had a house. Anytime Jesus was in town or in the area, I can stay at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. We can all stay. We'll all get fed. We have a place to go. And one day, it says that Jesus was sitting there and he's teaching and everybody's gathered around because he is unloading some, some knowledge, right? We don't know what he's teaching. All we know, the story that the gospel tells us is that Martha is working really hard because all of these fishermen, tax collectors, assassins, one of, do you know one of Jesus' disciples was like a rebel who was possibly an assassin, you know? Um, and he got renewed and and. and God got a hold of his life. But, like, they've got some characters that could probably put back some food, you know, and are hungry, and they're, they're dirty, and they need a place to stay. And Martha is making sure everybody's taken care of. And I'm so thankful for the people in our church that are always looking like, what do you need? What do you need? And they, they are, have a grace for hospitality, you know, and they just, they, they're abundant in it. But that grace for hospitality, it, it, it's got to start with knowing I'm accepted in the beloved. I, I first am, am receiving what I need from the Lord so that I have something to give to others. But Martha, she's getting more and more frustrated, get more and more bitter. Remember, that's what we said could have happened with Paul. If he had not been next to Jesus, all he would have had was bitterness about people that let him down. Well, Martha's feeling bitter. She's getting pretty ticked off, pretty frustrated at her sister because while she's working hard, her hippie sister's just sitting at the feet of Jesus doing nothing, cross-legged or whatever, just sitting there, just, just loving on Jesus. Just, oh, this is wonderful, Jesus. Let me ask you another question. And Martha's there making bologna sandwiches going, man, I, I mean, I'd like to sit at the feet of Jesus. Don't you think I'd like that? Don't you think I'd want to just take a rest? My feet are hurting. The dogs are barking. Don't you, don't you think I'd love to just sit at the feet of Jesus like everybody else? But we're hosts. We got work to do. 
And Martha, and I'm, I'm almost positive she was a teacher's pet in school. She's probably that kid. Raises their hands and says, Timmy is, Timmy is biting his eraser. Is he allowed to do that? Like, she goes to Jesus and she says, Master, tell Mary to help me because I'm working. And I, I'm sure she just thought, finally, I, Mary, I'm sorry I had to go nuclear. You made me do it. I tried to give you little motions, like little, come here, help me, help me, little signals. I'm probably sure she walked through the room sighing heavily, trying to drop a hint, like, ah, so much work. Mary's not picking up any hands, so she finally goes to the big man. She goes above her head, hey, master, tell Mary to help me. Mary's not helping me. She's just sitting there. We got work to do. And Jesus opens her mouth, and I'm sure at that moment Mary's like, all right, Martha's like, you know, I'm going to be proven, right? And Jesus says, actually, Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. Like, yeah, but you have to eat. You say that because you have a full belly, so now she's got the better thing. But I've got to be a host. He says, she's chosen the better thing. She's chosen to sit here at my feet. And that, that statement, while it might come across as a rebuke, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for Martha to come over and sit down. And there's an invitation that comes out to us from the Lord all the time. I'm so glad you're doing things for me, but I first asked you to be with me. Because if you be with me, then what you do for me will be actually what you do through me. Amen. Not just for me, but through me. Because you can't remember what he said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say you're not going to be busy or you're not going to be working hard. It just won't do anything. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that if I gave all my money to the poor, if I gave, all my, if I gave my body to be burned, if, if I uh, spoke with the tongues of men and angels, if I had faith to move a mountain, he says all these things, if I didn't have love, it's nothing. And so there are things you can do that will count for nothing in your life. You remember on the day of Pentecost, the church had gathered, 120 souls gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. That is a tight space. And they're eating and sleeping in the same space. And they're praying. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And they are filled with power from on high. And then from that place, they go out into the street and they begin to proclaim, uh, they begin to praise God and speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it cool? And yet, remember, our instinct is to hit the street first because the street needs Jesus. Or some of us, our instinct is just to stay in the upper room for the rest of our life because it's nice. But the pattern in the Bible is you start in the upper room and you receive. And then you go into the street with what you've received. It always starts time with God. And everything comes out of that place. Amen. We need a group of people. We need a church full of people that know how to dwell in the presence of God, know how to seek the presence of God, know where to look when you need strength because I guarantee whenever you need strength, you're looking somewhere. The problem is we're looking for strength in all the wrong places. There's an article that'll make me feel better. There's, I watch this YouTube video, make me feel better. Maybe I need a friend to tell me something. But what you really need is time next to Jesus. Amen. I want to read you something from Psalm 73. And we'll... We'll bring it to an end with this, but Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph, who was a prolific songwriter, wrote many of the psalms uh, in this book. Psalms has psalms written by David, 
Solomon wrote, a, wrote, a, wrote one, uh, Moses wrote one, but Asaph has written quite a few in here as well. And Psalm 73, he starts out really positive. Surely God is good to Israel. Hey, it's going to be a happy sermon today. Praise the Lord. I'm glad I brought my friend at this service. Surely God is good to Israel. Hey, all right. He's going to talk about how God is good to Israel. Hey, we're part of Israel. Awesome. You know how people are getting pumped? To those who are pure in heart. Then he goes, but as for me, uh-oh, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. So he's, he's warning, and this is a great thing about the scriptures, great thing about the wisdom that we come, uh, come across in it is that um, people that made mistakes are vulnerable enough to tell us what mistakes they made so we don't make the same mistakes. And he says, listen, this, is, this guy is one of the lead songwriters. He is one of the leaders of worship. He is one of the Levite priests whose job it is to lead the, the nation in worship. I'm not just talking about a local gathering. I'm talking about a nation. He writes songs that the nation will sing. If this guy stumbles, it's going to cause problems for a lot of people. He says, as for me, my feet almost came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Well, what did you do? What, what, what was it that caused you to almost stumble? He says, I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph has been raised to... to to know that God is a God of justice. He, he's raised to believe that God will make all things right in the end. And so what's vexing him, what's causing him trouble is he's seeing wicked people do well. And it's bugging him. Lord, that's not supposed to happen. The wicked are supposed to fall. The righteous are supposed to be lifted up. He says, I, I saw... I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. He's saying they're dying nice, easy deaths in their comfy beds. Their body is fat. That's not super politically correct, Asaph, but <laughs> you know in his culture, fatness is a sign of prosperity, right? In our culture, it's a sign of different things, but depending, I mean, everybody's got different reasons, but in his culture, if you said, you know, there's scriptures that say the Lord will delight in fatness, you know. Praise the Lord. I'm delighting in fatness. It means that you're, you're well fed. Lord's taking care of you. So he says, that's not fair. Have you ever been envious because somebody was fat and you wanted to be? He said, their body's fat. Why not me, Lord? <laughs> huh? That's not fair. Wicked people are dying fat. Where's the justice? They're not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes <laughs> bulge from fatness. Now, he's really getting envious now, huh? <laughs> you guys remember this is a song? You ever wonder what kind of music is behind this song? <laughs> their eyes piled from fatness. I don't know. Maybe it's a happy ska song or something. I don't know. Like, this is a song the whole nation's got to learn. You're teaching your kids to sing it with you. Their eyes bulge from fatness. And already, it's kind of a depressing song. Maybe it sounds like the blues at this point. You know, it's sad. It's, it's not fair. 
The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. In other words, they have power. And that shouldn't be the case. How come they have power? They've set their mouth against the heavens. Lord, they've opposed you. Why don't you do something? It's like going to your dad and said, my friend said his dad could beat up my dad. What are you going to do, dad? And dad goes, I'm not doing anything right now. No, dad, you're supposed to go beat him up. Go, dad, go beat him up. And he's saying, look, look, they're talking to you, God. They speak from on high, and they're, they're speaking against you. They've set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And here's what they say. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease, and they've increased in wealth. He ever looked around and said, hey, look at, the, look at these billionaires don't even love the Lord. That are arrogant and proud. Against why are they doing so well? Why is, this, why is this corporation, why is this government doing this? And you start to say, that's not right. Why is this happening? This is what Asaph is feeling. They've actually increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. What's he saying? I've wasted my life. I've worked so hard to keep my heart pure, thinking God would bless me. And look, you've blessed them. I've washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. These guys are having a great life. Meanwhile, I'm getting corrected by God every morning. Meanwhile, I think like I'm, I'm struggling here. Like, like I'm the one that's got to fix my life. Look, I've tried my best to live for you, Lord. How is this fair? Now, he's telling you how he felt. Remember, this is all him telling you how he almost slipped. So learn. Learn from it. Remember what happens when we're, we're not near to God. We see things from our perspective. And we see things from our perspective. As real as it seems to you, it's always twisted. Because God has a perspective that's, that's perfect. You are seeing from a very limited perspective. And when we're viewing these things apart from God, here's what's super common. Bitterness. Anger, frustration. Remember, Paul could have gone that direction. Stephen could have gone that direction. Martha did go that direction. And here the psalmist said, that's where I went to. I was bitter. He said, if I had opened my mouth and said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Why? Because he's the, the lead worshiper for a whole nation. If he had said, I'm going to write a song about this, now you say, well, he kind of did. No, yeah, but this one turns good in the end. You'll see. <laughs> but if he had just written his blues out of that and said, I just need to let it out. If he had had social media, yeah. right, and just said, I got to get this off my chest. And you know those social media posts where you don't name somebody, but you're naming somebody? You're like, some people, nah, 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 and everybody knows who it is. And you like tagged them anyways, right? Some people. Not going to say their name, but it rhymes with, you know. <laughs> Go on your rants. Not fair. He said, if I had opened my mouth and said, I'll speak this, I would have betrayed a whole generation of your children. There are some things you need to hold your tongue until you can get the perspective of the Lord. Amen. There are things I say. Somebody say, what do you think about this? And I say, I don't have an opinion. Oh, you're one of those people who just says, I don't need to have an opinion. I said, no, I don't have an opinion yet. But I, I can't have an opinion about that I, until I talk to the Lord about it. Because right now, I'll tell you my honest, honestly, what I want to have an opinion about is I'm angry. Yeah. 
I don't think it's fair. I think it's wrong. Now, there's some things you can straight up say. The Bible says it's wrong. God says it's wrong. You can say it's wrong. But even then, like, even everything he's saying would have lined up with the word, you know? Like, he's, he's saying it's not, it doesn't seem right. It seems like the Bible tells me that God's going to take care of the wicked and, and he'll uphold the righteous. doesn't seem like it's happening. What he has to do is get God's perspective. So he says, thank God I didn't say anything because if I had, I would have betrayed a whole generation. I would have put those words in somebody else's mouth. They would have sung that song and poisoned their own heart. Watch what he says. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until I came into the sanctuary of God. What's the sanctuary? Sanctuary is a holy place. I came into the holy place where God lives. I came into the presence of God. And when I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived there and I saw what God saw. See, what I was seeing was so temporary. They seem like they're doing well. They seem like they're prospering. But then he says, when I saw from God's perspective, when I spent time in the presence of God, I saw the end of their wickedness. I saw what was going to happen. He says, surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are utterly destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. Here's the ironic thing. When you are most led by your senses, that's when you're most senseless. Because it's, the, it's your physical senses. And that is a very limited way to see life. What you know, what you perceive. Thank God for our physical senses. But it's not seeing what God sees. And he says, I was senseless and I was ignorant. I didn't know. I was like a beast before you. What do beasts do? What do animals do? What, what, why do they make the decisions they make? They're not perceiving in the spirit. They're not seeing what does God say about this. When they want to go to the bathroom, they go to the bathroom. When they want to mate, they mate. They're making decisions based on instinct, based on what they feel. Like They do what they feel. They do what they want. But a human being has the power to choose, has the power to obey God or reject God. A human being now, renewed in the spirit of God, born again human being, can see things you couldn't see before. But you have to choose to see them. Every one of us has, has eyes that were opened by the light of God. Yes? We all have eyes that God's opened. But you can go back to darkness. Even though Jesus paid for your sight, even though Jesus gave you sight, you can close your eyes and act like you're blind and talk like everybody else. I was a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. There he is. Where's, where's God? Beside him. Standing beside me. And with your counsel, you will guide me. That's what we need is we need God's counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, listen, far from you, will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. 
How does he define those that are lost and those that are falling into despair and wickedness? He says, they're far. They're far from you. What a tragedy that somebody who's been bought by the blood of the lamb. And the Bible says he, pre- he went to those that were far and preached peace to them and brought them near by the blood. We've been brought near by the work of the cross. How tragic it would be if we drifted far Not because God pushed us there, not because he doesn't love us anymore, but because we were distracted by other things. We drift. Here's the thing. Every man and woman of God that I've ever honored and looked up to in my life has valued one thing above everything else, and that is the fear of the Lord. It is a desire for the presence of God. They they know how to spend time with God. In fact, what I would say about these people, I, I, I know they know a lot about God. But that's not how I describe them. I'd say they know God. They know God. That person knows the Lord. They know him like they know him. It's because they spent time with him. You ever wondered? You've been praying for a long time. What in the world are you praying about? How can you pray for that long? Because Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles who think they're heard, their prayers are heard because they used a lot of words. He says, when we pray, we're supposed to believe we receive when we pray. So Jesus doesn't seem to be advocating praying the same thing over and over again or using 500 words when you can use 10. So why are they praying for so long? Why did Jesus pray for so long? The book of Luke says he often went for a long time to pray. Well, I've read the stories and the writings of some of these great men and women of God, men and women of prayer. Do you know what they say? They say, our time in prayer. Yes, you're supposed to bring requests before God. The Bible says so. Bring your requests. Bring your petitions. Jesus said, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. He says to be persistent. Don't give up in your prayer. Yes. But when you read these stories and you talk to these people who have a, a life of prayer, it's not that they're asking the same question over and over again. Because their prayer time is not a time where they're trying to change God. Their prayer time is a time where God is changing them. It's not a time where they're trying to convince God of something. It's often much of their prayer life. They do bring things before the Lord. They bring requests. But much of their prayer life is God saying, this is my heart. This is my will. Now ask me. Pray this out. Pray for this person. Here's what you pray. And in that time of prayer, they're changed. You see, we so often approach prayer like it's our chance to change God's mind when really it's God's chance to change our mind. We come in line with him. Our heart comes in line with him. And we become like Asaph who says, until I came in your sanctuary, I was, I was nuts. I was losing my step. But then I came into your holy place. I came into your presence. And I saw what you saw. The bitterness left him. The anger, frustration left him. And now what does he say? The surely the Lord is at my right hand. You're right here. And he says, the nearness of God is my good. There are answers you'll never get from reading all the books in the world. There are things I wish I could explain that are settled in my heart that I don't know words to explain them, but I know this. In the presence of God, you'll know. There is peace that you can only find in his presence. There's joy. The Bible says there's pleasures evermore. There is joy everlasting, the joy, fullness of joy in his presence. And so we have to be a people that are not so distracted 
that our time with God is limited to a Sunday or a couple of a few minutes when we get a chance on a day. But we should be the people that say, I am addicted to the presence of God. And so I'm going to set time aside and I'm going to just pray, but I'm going to listen for a while. I'm going to worship. I'm going to thank God for a while. I'm just going to spend time with him. I'm not going to rush it like it's a doctor's appointment. I'm going to let him speak. And I'm going to let him stand beside me because the more you learn to recognize the presence of God, the more you'll know he's standing right next to me and he's strengthening me. 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 1 says that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. But he says, before that, he says, it is thanks be to God, the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercy. And he says that he comforts us in all our afflictions so that we might comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort we've been given. The word comfort in the Greek there does not mean a soft, downy pillow. It actually means somebody who gets beside you and helps you. That's the word for comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. So he says that God is a God of all comfort. And you can imagine if you're about to fall down, if you're, about to, if you're so weary, you've hit blow after blow has hit your life, hit your family, and you just say, I can't take it anymore. And he says he is a God of all comfort, and he stands beside you, and he comforts you. And then what you have now is you have comfort to give someone else. You become the presence of Jesus in somebody else's life. You stand next to him. You don't desert him like everybody else deserted him. You stay with him. You stick with him. And you say, the Lord stood with me, so I know now what you need because I have it in abundance. I got something to give to you. But if I hadn't spent time with the Lord, I have nothing to give you. If I didn't spend time with him, I can come and try to be a help, but all I got is my well wishes. All I got are some thoughts. But if I am in the presence of God, then I have something now to give to you because I've received so I can give. Amen. Freely received. Freely give. Amen.